and welcome to What's the Story Ghost. I'm your host, Annette. And I'm Stephen. And I just realised you have Coke. Yeah, uh, cola. No, I know, right, but like it's the time. You don't do well with caffeine, you're going to be up all No, night. that's not caffeine, that's coking. <laughs> but it's delicious and refreshing. It is, it's very delicious and refreshing. Stephen, do you know who Travis Walton is? No. Does he own the shop, um, the musical instrument shop? Oh, I love Walton's. Is that still in town or is it only in Blanche now? Uh, I don't know. Uh, so we crack on? Crackety crack. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I love Star Trek. I'm kidding, I mention it every chance I get. But it's not just the life of action, exploration and adventure in space that I love, or the huge starships that I imagine would take months to get to know well enough not to have to keep asking for directions to tend forward, or the super slick uniforms and the sheer convenience of not having to pick out new outfits every day. It's the thought of laying eyes on another sentient life form and learning how different and also how similar we are. I think the universe, aside from the fact that it is ever expanding, is just too big for us to assume that we are the only sentient kids on the block. But as much as I would love to meet Blorg from Ariana Prime's Third Moon, the thought of taking a walk here in the Wicklow Mountains or along the coastline at Killary Fjord and meeting an alien scares the holy bejeebies out of me. So needless to say, Travis Walton's famous encounter hits me hard in the scary department because he wasn't actively UFO hunting or illegally trespassing in Area 51. He was just commuting home from work. By the age of 22, Travis Walton was known by his friends and his hometown as what we would call a bit of a mad lad. When he wasn't riding as Harley Davidson, he enjoyed boxing. He was also known to partake in a bit of wild bull riding. So not a lover of driving in the slow lane, but he wasn't reckless. Although there is one story, how true it is I don't know, but there is one story of Travis driving in a car with his friends and a bear coming out of the woods and onto the road. And of course, Travis jumped out of the car and chased the bear away. When Travis wasn't riding his bike, or riding bulls, or fighting bears, he was a logger. He was part of a seven-man tree-thinning crew. No big machinery or tractor units, just regular chainsaws and brute force. But they were a very hard-working crew, and known by their crew leader, 28-year-old Mike Rogers, as very level-headed guys, and they needed to be. It can be a very dangerous profession. On Wednesday, November 5th, 1975, Mike took a contract to clear a 12,000 acre area in the Apache Sickgraves National Forest near the town of Snowflake, Arizona. This was a mammoth sized job for Mike's crew and he tells them up front they will be working long days. So Mike, Travis, Alan, John, Dwayne, Kenneth and Steve all pile into Mike's pickup truck and get to work. But by day three, even though the men had been barely taking any breaks and were working long, long days, they were still behind. Morale was a bit low and the men were growing even more tired. As the sun went down, so did the temperature. And although Mike knew they still had a ways to go, he called it a day. The men all piled into the pickup again and started their drive down the dirt road to the main road and back to town. As they were driving home, the crew were chatting about everything and nothing. When out of one of the windows, through the trees in the forest, someone noticed a light. 
wasn't anything spectacular. The light went practically unnoticed until it was pointed out. One of them suggested it was probably the moon, until a crewman pointed out the moon was on the opposite side of the truck. They thought briefly that it might have been a fire, but noticed there was no smoke. Dwayne suggested that it was a crash plane caught in the trees. But curiosity got the better of the men, and they felt compelled to see what the light was. Mike took the turn off the main road, and started down an access road that led them back into the forest in the direction of the light. As the men grew closer, they realised the light was emanating from a structure. The truck hadn't come to a full stop yet, and mad lad Travis swung open his door to get a full view. Excited to see what in the name of God this big, bright object was, Travis was taken aback when he saw that the object was not a grounded structure at all. It was floating, defying the laws of gravity. Alan yelled, My God! flying saucer. The men on the left side of the truck leaned over so they could see. Mike shut off the engine of the truck and in the now instant silence you could almost hear their collective heartbeats pounding with excitement, intrigue and fear. The object was a mere 20 feet above the ground. Travis estimated the overall diameter to be 15 or maybe 20 feet and it was about 8 or 10 feet thick. So not a gigantic Independence Day-sized ship. In fact, what he describes sounds more like a scout ship, a small craft sent to scope out the lay of the land. Travis took in the looks on his colleagues' faces and then looked back to the object. Suddenly it dawned on him that this thing could disappear at any moment and he'd missed the chance of a lifetime to really see it. So he quickly but quietly climbed out of the truck and made his way down toward the object. The men were shocked by this sudden move from Travis and began yelling, but in a whispered tone, uh, What do you think you're doing? from Mike. The other men started calling Travis, telling him to come back to the truck, but he was mesmerised. Before he had a moment to pause and let the sober realisation of what it was he was doing catch up with him, he was now about six feet from being directly under the floating object. He was close enough to hear a blend of low and high-pitched noises coming from the craft. He just kept telling himself that if he needed to run, he could run. Travis, get over here! Mike yelled at him. Travis heard Mike and looked back at the truck as if to acknowledge that he had heard him, and then looked back at the ship, possibly observing one more time before retreating. But seconds later, Travis was struck by a vibrant bluish-green beam of light that seemingly came from the bottom of the craft and sent him flying backwards about 10 feet. The beam was so vibrant and so bright that it lit up the night sky, like someone flicked a switch turning the sky from night to day and back again. It happened so fast that Travis's previous theory of I can just run if I need to was proven completely idealistic. You got him! Steve yelled. Dwayne screamed, Let's get out of here! Get this son of a bitch moving! Alan shrieked hysterically. Mike didn't need to be asked twice. He was already fumbling around trying to turn the key in the ignition. The truck roared to life and he put the foot to the floor, spinning the steering wheel one way and then the other, trying to navigate the dirt road out of the forest. Is it following us? He yelled over his shoulder. Nobody answered. Is it after us? He shouted again. And again, no one answered. They were all completely in shock. 
My kit speeds are 35 miles per hour, which doesn't sound that fast, but when you take into account the truck was full to the brim with six fully grown men, all their logging equipment, fuel for their equipment, and they were on a road not designed for a quick exit, it was way too fast on a pothole covered road. The old international went flying through the air over a dirt ramp. As it landed, the truck bounced around on already strained suspension and then it hit Mike. If the truck broke down because of his recklessness, they would be stranded with that thing. It doesn't look like it's after us, Mike said, which sort of startled the men out of their trance-like state. I saw him falling back, but what happened to him? Mike asked. Ken replied first. Man, a blue ray just shot out of the bottom of that thing and hit him all over. It, it just seemed to engulf him. Dwayne then added, Good hell, it looked like he disintegrated. No, he was in one piece, Steve argued. I saw him hit the ground. I do know one thing. It looked like he got hit by lightning or something, Dwayne said. I heard a zap, like as if he touched a live wire. Someone finally said, Hey, man, we better go back. No way, man. I ain't going back there, someone else said. The men now, all speaking over each other at the same time, where no one could make out what the other was saying. But it came to an abrupt stop, when what looked like the outline of a golden disc flew over the trees and away towards the northeast at incredible speed. Mike had had enough, he said firmly. This truck is going back. Anyone who doesn't want to come can get out right here and right now and wait. We've been acting like a bunch of cowards. We are all scared. There's no denying that. But we have got to do what we should have done in the first place. The men agreed, feeling slightly embarrassed. They no longer protested returning to the site. Besides, the option of waiting alone at the turn off in the dark was much worse than going back together. The time away from the site had given them a second to build their courage back up. So they all made the journey back up to the site. But when they got there, they found nothing. Not just that they didn't find Travis. There was no floating object, no tracks, no burn marks on the earth, no signs of a struggle, no signs that there was ever anything unusual there. Try as he might, he couldn't push past the feeling. Mike was eventually overcome with emotion. He felt so guilty for leaving his friend behind and the pressure from the other man looking to him as their leader for reassurance and guidance. But he just about managed to pull himself together and said, Okay, you guys, we're not doing any good here, let's go. Sitting in the truck making their way back to town, Ken said what they were all thinking, but no one had wanted to say. We're going to have to tell the authorities about this. Of course he was right, and they weren't planning on keeping it to themselves or anything like that, but if you were... I mean... How do you... What do you say? How, how do you explain what just happened when you're not even sure what just happened? Ken, a recently married, level-headed guy, and probably the most composed of the group, made the phone call to the local sheriff once they reached a payphone. But what the crew didn't really grasp straight away is that despite their best efforts to explain to Sheriff Marlon Gillespie and his partner Sheriff Ken Copeland what they witnessed... The sheriffs found it all a little too hard to believe, and they think the men may have harmed Travis and are trying to cover it up. But even Sheriff Gillespie, a sceptic, 
thinks that this story, as a cover-up, makes no sense. These men clearly look like they've been through some sort of trauma. So they organise a huge search effort in the area where Travis was last seen. But as the search is yielding no results, both Sheriff Gillespie and Copeland approach Mike Rogers and his crew and outstraight say to them, We know you did this, but if you tell us what happened and where Travis's body is, we'll take that into consideration. At this stage, it's starting to sink in for the men. If they don't find Travis, they could be done for murder. Meanwhile, Travis is on a spaceship, but he doesn't know that yet. He's not exactly having the experience his curiosity anticipated as he wakes up in agony, feeling like he's been burnt all over, even on the inside. He can barely open his eyes without a searing pain running through his face. And he's experiencing that metallic taste you get in your mouth just before you're about to be sick. He was afraid any move he made would see him in so much more pain he might render himself unconscious again. So he lays still for a moment, trying to take in what he can. He can tell, given his placement in the room, that there's a blurry light over him and that he's lying on a bed. So he assumes with his first rational thought that he's in a hospital. But why would he be in a hospital? And then the memories come rushing back to him. But he notices that he still has all of his work clothes on. He assumes he was so badly injured that there was just no time to remove his clothing, but he really wishes they had. It was extremely uncomfortably warm. He could feel beads of sweat on his temples. Then he felt something being placed on his abdomen. Some sort of curved device was now laying across his chest, going down either side of his rib cage, from under his arms to just above his belt. He strained his eyes a little more to see if he could make out who was in the room with him now. He looked past the end of the shiny, dark grey metal or plastic device to the blurry figures he could barely make them out. They had white masks on their faces and caps on their heads. They were also wearing the most unusual orange-coloured surgical gowns or suits. But his blurry vision still made it difficult to make out anyone's faces. And then, quick as a snap, his vision cleared. Travis knew immediately that he was not in a hospital and these were not doctors. He was looking straight into the big brown eyes of a horrible creature. He looked around frantically and saw that there were three of them in the room. Now, in fear for his life, Travis summoned enough strength to strike out at two of the creatures standing to his right-hand side. His strike was more of a shove as he was so weak, but he still managed to topple one of them. He described the creature as spongy. He staggered to his feet, his legs too weak to carry his own weight. He leaned heavily on a counter. The three creatures cornered him. He reached out and grabbed the only thing he had the strength to hold up. It was a nearly weightless, thin, transparent cylinder. It was too light to do any damage, so he smashed the top of the cylinder like a glass bottle in a bar brawl and began screaming desperate, hysterical threats at the creatures. The creatures looked at him as though they were observing this fight-or-flight behaviour. Keep back, damn you! Travis shrieked. The creatures stood still and Travis was able to fully take them in now. They were five feet tall, tiny little things, with similar features to our own. Two legs, two arms and hands, but no fingernails, and facial features the same as our own. But beyond the outline, any similarity to humans was terrifyingly absent. Just as Travis had sprung into action to defend himself, 
The creatures then scurried out of the room, out the open door, right, and then just disappeared. No sooner did they leave than Travis was afraid of their return, so he looked for a better weapon to protect himself than a way out. He slowly peeped his head through the door into a dimly lit curved corridor and saw no one. There was a doorway to the right down the corridor, but Travis was too afraid to stop. And then he realised that could very well be the way out, so he made his way back to that door. This door leads into a room with what looks like three triangle-shaped doors and a chair. Travis presses a couple of buttons on the control panel on the chair, but nothing happens. And just then, he looked back to the door and sees a man, six foot two and about 200 pounds, very strong looking, dressed in what he describes as a spacesuit, but no insignia. He runs to him and begs him for help. Without saying a word or even making eye contact, he takes Travis by the arm and leads him away from the room. Travis has stopped asking the man questions at this stage because he's just not answering any of them. He leads him to another door, which is the entrance to a huge hangar, where he sees loads of the spacecraft similar to what he witnessed in the forest. The next room they go into has three more people like the other tall man. Travis is convinced now that they're here to help him. So when they begin to lay him down on yet another bed, he resists a little because he's too weak to resist much more, and because he really does believe that they're there to help him. They cover his face with a mask, like an oxygen mask, and he blacks out. The next memory Travis has is waking up on the pavement west of Heber, Arizona. The cold air instantly woke him. He was lying on his tummy with his head lying on his right arm. He turned to see the craft above him, but the most striking thing about it was the sheer silence of its departure. Travis ran, he ran as fast as he could until he reached the new building across from the Union 76 service station, but no one was there. So he ran to the next bridge, to the telephone booths, and called his sister. She was the only person he knew who lived nearby. His brother-in-law, Grant, answered, and Travis shouts, They brought me back! I'm out here in Heber, please get somebody to come and get me. Grant, assuming it was yet another cruel joke, says, Um... I think you have the wrong number. And starts to hang up. Wait, it's me, Travis! He screamed into the phone. Grant questions where he is and agrees to come and collect him. But he's still dubious, so he calls Travis's brother, Dwayne. And they both decide that they may as well at least investigate it. Light fills the phone booth as Grant and Dwayne pull up to where Travis directed them. Am I ever glad to see you? Grant says. Dwayne helped Travis off the floor of the phone boot and into the warm truck. Travis kept telling them about who and what he saw. His brother reassured him that he's fine now and asking if he was hurt. Travis said he was fine, but he just kept saying over and over, But those eyes, those, those horrible eyes. Travis asks about the time, as he only recalled about an hour, maybe an hour and a half of the ordeal, so he assumes he's been out for a few hours. But Dwayne and Grant looked strangely at Travis, and Dwayne said gently, You've been missing for five days. The crew underwent psychiatric testing and polygraphs during the interview. Lie detector tests administered to Travis and the other witnesses came back as passing or inconclusive. Although a psychiatrist suspected Travis was making up the abduction, he could not explain why or how the others agreed to it. 
According to research, the area around Travis's abduction was the scene of cattle mutilations not long before the abduction. A study of the trees directly surrounding the area Travis was struck has shown their growth has accelerated due to radiation exposure. A comparison of the tree rings in the area and those nearby show that the affected trees underwent a significant change. The crew met up at Mike Rogers' home after Travis came back. Travis had to speak with the police and family first and then the press, and then he came to meet the crew and tell them what happened. Though they wished more than anything for his story not to be true, they believed him wholeheartedly because they saw the first half of what happened. They felt an enormous sense of guilt for not waiting or going back sooner to help or retrieve him. But when they left Mike's house that night, they went their separate ways. They did not keep in touch. And even though this story is well known for being the most believable account of an abduction, the whole incident ruined these men. One of the men, his whole family disowned him because they didn't want to be associated with him. I think that's one of the main reasons I would be afraid to encounter an alien here on a walk in the Wicklow Mountains or on the coastline of Killary Fjord. Because no matter how much proof I had or how realistic my story was, who would believe me? What do you think of that story? That was, that was great stuff. I know it was really long, but there's just so much that, that cool. I... It, there's a lot that I left out, but there's so much that I couldn't leave out. When in the, when in the timeline was this? Uh, 75. 75. So I think, to the best of my knowledge, this was just after... Now, I could be wrong, so don't come for me if I am wrong, but I think this was just after uh, Betty and Barney Hill. The Rubbles? No. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, I never even thought... Maybe I have their names wrong. I could have their names wrong. But that's another famous encounter. Um, because I, when I, I, I fell down a massive rabbit hole of looking at different alien encounters, um, and there was a lot more that had a lot more press. But because it was in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and it was pre-Google, you and I might not know a lot mm. about them because we wouldn't sit actively reading the headlines going, man, abducted by, or woman says husband's wearing someone else's skin. Or... Uh, no, 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 It was really sad, though, because... This is going to sound a little bit controversial. I believe in aliens, and that's not because of my love of Star Trek. Obviously, it's hint- like it's, it, I'm a little bit biased, but I just think the universe is far too vast. I mean, watch one episode of The Cosmos and let Neil deGrasse Tyson explain it to you, and you'll understand where I'm coming from. But I just think the universe is too vast for us to think that we are the only sentient life forms. In fact, I found out recently, up until about 20 years ago, we couldn't see any planets outside of our solar system or outside of our galaxy. Now we have found 14, it was a ridiculous number, it's either like 1,400 different planets, 24 of which can sustain life. So I'm thinking, okay, that's that's what we would require, i.e. like a Goldilocks planet. So you have to have water, you have to have a rocky surface, it has to orbit a sun, and like it has to meet all the criteria. So there's 24 so other planets. So Costa, Costa? Yeah, it has to have all the essentials, yeah, yeah. the amenities. But... I don't like that's just to sustain us and our level of oxygen that we require mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, if there's any other sentient being that's even remotely like us, why would we think that we're the only people? Although then again, up until like a hundred years ago, we thought we that everyone evolved around us and not us evolved around the sun. I do believe in aliens is the point I'm trying to make. I don't know, however, if I. I don't want to say I don't believe in alien abductions. I just don't understand why 
another sentient being has mastered, clearly mastered warp travel because, I mean, it takes 90 years to get to Pluto. They've clearly mastered warp travel. Why, why, why are they probing? Why are they sticking stuff places it's not supposed to go? Why are they abducting people? Clearly they have the technology to observe us from a faraway place. One of our friends actually is very adamant that he saw a Yeti or Bigfoot type thing. Yeah. In the Wicklow Mountains. Yeah, I'd well believe it. I'd well believe it. Like, I mean, all right, and, and here's the reason why. Who am I to tell you that you did or didn't see something? No, no, <laughs> no, no. But I can't say that you did or didn't see something because I didn't see what you saw. If the two of us are looking up in the night sky and my vision is a little bit better than yours, or I am deliberately looking for a shooting star, if I see the shooting star and you didn't see it, did the shooting star not happen? Uh, it did. But you don't know that because you didn't see it. Did you tell me? Okay, so this whole wife-husband thing where you trust me is irrelevant. I'm saying, who am I to say that anyone who says that they saw a ghost or they, they felt a ghost or they saw uh, Bigfoot, or they, well, although we found out recently he's in Washington, just in case anyone's looking for him, who are we to assume any of that? Do you have any characters for me? I know there's a lot in there. Well, there's seven, and I, you've, you've disenchanted me and said I couldn't use the seven dwarfs. No. So... <laughs> And I, and this is probably a little on the lazy side, so I'm just going to pick seven people from the cast of Armageddon because they're a crew. But that makes sense, that, yeah. That uh, encountered aliens and had to work together as a team. Yeah. They also saved the world. Yeah. These guys just got away with murder. Will so, I tell you something, though, that I learned and I didn't realise this? In comparison to how well those guys all work together, when you get down to the nitty-gritty, there's some of them that actually irk each other. It was actually the same with these guys. They didn't get along like best, best friends. They did have arguments with each other. At one stage, Mike, the crew boss, was way, 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 ways down the forest trying to fix up. Um, so there's obviously a professional way that you're supposed to stack trees after mm-hmm. you've debranched them and you have to put them all in a kind of seven on the bottom and then six and then five mm-hmm. up in a triangle shape and Mike was way down the ways and he was like in his in his book because I got some excerpts he's given out about one of the other lads not pulling his weight not doing the stacks right and then Mike has to go and fix it but then because Mike has gone one of the other guys is taking a sneaky mm-hmm. smoke break so they all had a little bitch at each other but it's not as if they were all besties and Travis said look I think I can write a book will you all vouch for me and say that this is what happened so if the seven of them weren't all bestest friends why would they lie? Mm. It didn't benefit anyone. It ruined pretty much everyone's life except whoever got a book deal out of it. Yeah. Seven people? Yes. You gotta have Bruce Willis in there. He's he's El Capitano. He's Mike Rogers. Okay. Yeah. Ben Affleck. Travis. He he he, yeah. he serves to cry. Uh Steve Buscemi. Oh, he could play anybody. He's anybody's man. Michael Clark? Yes. Uh Forgot he was in it, but Owen Wilson. Oh my god, he's the best! How many is that now? One, two, three, four, five. Need two more. Will Patton. Yes. Oh, and I think I used Peter Stormare before in another episode, didn't I? Is Where he is? Swedish? He's the Swedish guy I was talking about. I had two Swedish guys you were talking about. Oh no, you definitely did use him before because I tried to say it was Armageddon and Armageddon, but I accidentally said it was Deep Impact. Yes. And then we yeah. went on. But you look, you know, actors play more than one role in their life. <laughs> there you go. Would you like to know the rabbit hole I fell down? Yeah, give it to me. Okay. The dot over the I is called a tittle. It's also over the J. Is it over any other letters? What's the cross and the T? 
I so tip your eyes and cross your teeth. <laughs> um, I also learned, where did I even find this rabbit hole? I think I have the, the link for it somewhere. Um, the word orange, purple and silver do not have any words that rhyme with them. Now Eminem will disagree and he'll probably find something I'm sorry, in there somewhere. I'm sorry, but I'm sure the word purple rhymes with purple. <laughs> Honey is the only natural food that doesn't go bad. There is a 3,000 year old Egyptian pot of honey that was found and it was just as edible as ever. I don't think I'd like to be the person that gets offered, would you like to take the first try? I'd be kind of like, mm, no. Everything about the Huns was written by outsiders. I'm not suggesting that they were nice people, but the Huns had no writing system. They had no way of recording themselves. So therefore everything we know about them was written by somebody else. Which is interesting because how it's written will be- From their perspective. From, from their perspective and it would obviously, well, it would probably be quite negative about them, I think. But normally that it's the victors of wars that write history. Yeah. Whereas it's the people who are looking at these guys that are, whoops, drop my pen. It's the people who are looking at these guys that are writing the history. Mm. And I picked this one because you and I were talking about something there a little while ago. Um, eyewitnesses are the worst witnesses because you're getting their interpretation or their view and then it reminded me of the movie Vantage Point great movie if you haven't seen it it's absolutely brilliant but it's very hard to tell something from an honest point of view if you have something to lose or something to gain and mm. so I just thought that was really interesting uh, the next one there is an apple an onion and a potato all taste the same no, they don't. No, they don't. Well, 90%, uh, sorry, 99% of tasting these foods comes from your sense of smell. So if you blindfold someone, so clip their nose, and then feed them each of those things, you'd be surprised which one you think is which. I think I could tell the onion. The onion I could tell because it has layers. Don't yeah, layers. but you emulsify or mash the food in such a way that... But you'd eat a potato the same way you'd eat an apple. Like, you just have it in your hand and you jump on it. Did, did my family ever tell you the story about my dad and the onion? So my mom, God rest her, uh, was a sadistic woman. I, I just think what she did to my father was evil and I will never forgive her for it. So she got a Mars bar and she cut off half a bite's worth. Just half a bite's worth. And then she put um, a piece of onion in the Mars bar and then squished the Mars bar back up again. And it was dark by the time he came home. So when she said, close your eyes and open your mouth and see what God he gave you, she gave him the Mars bar, but he took a proper full bite and bit into it with the onion inside it. I know you don't find that gross because you like eating onions raw. But not any Mars bars. No, that's just, I just think she was, there was something wrong with the woman, seriously. <laughs> um, the next thing I learned, and I actually wanted to do this as a bit of a PSA, is almonds or peaches. Very few people are allergic to peaches, but quite a few are allergic to almonds. But they are actually in the same they're in the same family. So if you ever have an allergic reaction after each eating a peach pit, you know why. So be on guard. So if you ever find that someone's after eating a peach pit and they have allergic reaction symptoms, uh, you need to run and get help or an EpiPen if it's a case that they are allergic to peanuts. But I just thought that was something really good to know. Mm. Mm. This one's a little bit more lighthearted because I thought that one was a little bit heavy. A lot of our trees are due to absent-minded squirrels. So squirrels forget where, what they're doing a lot. Uh, so for this reason, they misplace nuts and seeds on a daily basis. Uh, they'll bury them somewhere and then forget where they buried them. And then because of their God-given negligence, we are provided with trees. Isn't that the most awesome, cute little mm. thing? Uh, and the last one there is the original potato head used real potatoes. So essentially, people in the 1950s, I think, would already know this, but we didn't know this. You were just given accessories that you would then put on an actual potato, which is kind of cool because then everybody's Mr. Potato Head would be different because some would be 
like small fat potatoes and some would be long skinny potatoes and you just stick the accessories on it I thought that was really cute mm. that's the rabbit hole I fell down I don't even know why it was I think it was no, I have no idea where that even came from. And after going like two or three episodes with very relevant rabbit holes now, I'm kind of like, what the f- How did I end up here? Um, so that's me. Do you, you have any questions? No. All good. Want to say your words? So thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you have any questions on today's or any other episode, please feel free to DM us on our Instagram. If you would like to send us a story of your own, our email is whatsthestoryghost at gmail.com. I will put all the links in the description on this week's episode. And those are all my words. Exit jingle. Exit jingle. Um, <laughs> uh, I have a tune in my mind, but I don't know what the tune goes. Exit jingle. <laughs> Bye. Bye.